0: Early on the morning of December 19th, Donald Trump pivoted to insurrection, tweeting out be there, we'll be wild about January 6th. And the MAGA media responded. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far right media personalities, began promoting the wild protest on January
1: 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020, and one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021.
0: And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th.
1: He is now... Calling on we the people to take action and to show our numbers.
0: We're going to only be saved
1: by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. You know, there we, we know the rules of engagement.
0: If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. That's something that may actually be the big push Trump supporters need to say. This is it. It's now or never.
1: You better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave, bitch. Red wave this is going to be a red wedding going down January
0: 6th. On that day, Trump says, show up for a protest. It's going to be wild. And based on what we've already seen from the previous events, I think Trump is absolutely correct.
1: Motherfucker, you better look outside. (laughs) You better look out January 6th. Kick that fucking door open. Look down the street. You're going to be a million plus geeked up armed Americans. (laughs) The time for games is over. The time for action is now. Where were you when history called? Where were you when you and your children's destiny and future was on the line?
0: morning and welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I am Charlie Sykes, our guest this morning, the morning after, my colleague Bill Crystal. Good morning,
2: Bill. Good morning, Charlie.
0: So uh, yesterday, once again, even for those of us that uh, have been immersed in Donald Trump's attempted coup, I thought the committee laid out a very, very stark timeline of what happened, centering on Donald Trump's tweet on December 19th, which, by the way, came about what, a little more than an hour, uh, hour and a half um, after the most insane unhinged meeting ever in the Oval Office where Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani were arguing about you know various other options for Trump to stay in power, including the possibility of the military seizing voting machines, naming Sidney Powell uh, special counsel. And apparently when Donald Trump realized that he wasn't going to get support from his White House aides, he decided that he was going to unleash the mob. And he put out that tweet. And I thought it was rather extraordinary the way they documented the way that the MAGA media immediately recognized that this was a call to action. I thought they did a really powerful job of connecting these dots.
2: What are your thoughts? I agree, I'm just listening to those clips. I I felt Mm -hmm. sort of physically sick, I've got to say, which is what I felt on January 6th, watching what was happening at the Capitol, a few miles away from where I live here in Northern Virginia, a place I've been many times, obviously, as you have, and just seeing that happen at the the US Capitol, um, and then being reminded that all these people were exulting in the thought of it happening made me feel makes me feel a little bit sick and and depressed about our country but again i come back why were we never trump you know this is like i don't want to obsess about this and but why were we so much against trump because having a demagogue like trump as president takes what's already you know a bunch of people who are irris- not just irresponsible but a little crazed and prone to violence and so forth but every country has and the u.s has had in its history the proud boys the oath keepers the rabble rousers the, the the people who are looking for an excuse almost to, you know to use violence what we haven't had is a demagogue as president who will think nothing of unleashing them that it's about trump at the end of the day it's not about the the, the proud boys and the oath keepers and that's why we were never trump but i just i don't want to you know i'm not yeah. patting myself on the back at all quite the contrary i just this is why it was serious this is why it wasn't about the tweets it wasn't because he was a little more protectionist on economic policy than i liked it wasn't because he you know was against uh, foreign policies that i supported or or insulted people it wasn't even that he insulted people that gets to a little bit of his character and what he would do to our politics. Having a, a totally unprincipled demagogue as president is very dangerous, and it was very dangerous, and the danger culminated on January 6th.
0: And the fact that the possibility of violence was always there. In one of the sound bites, one of the, the voices you heard is some guy named Salty Cracker who says, you know, better understand something. Red wedding, there's going to be a red wedding going down on January 6th. As Jamie Raskin explained later, red wedding is, he described it as a pop culture reference to mass slaughter. Anybody that watched Game of Thrones mm-hmm. knows that it's not just pop culture, it's a very, very specific reference to a very, very violent moment. And you put this together with all of the other things that we now know about uh, Donald Trump on January 6th, the fact that he ordered that the mags be taken down, that uh, even though he'd been informed that there were weapons, his plans to march on the Capitol, the fact that there were these unsent tweets signaling that he was going to make this unexpected announcement. But somehow the seditionists know, I guess the point is, All of the rationalizations that we have heard that, oh, Donald Trump didn't mean it. uh, He didn't know uh, it was spontaneous. One by one, they are being knocked down and destroyed by this committee. And yet, of course, there are still the turd polishers out there who will do the best to minimize the gravity of what happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, he tried to use the federal government to subvert the election, the Justice Department in particular, Defense Department as well, the White House staff. He tried to pressure state officials and state legislators, and then he unleashed the mob. He was hoping that any or all of them would work, obviously. And the the degree to which people, of course, your typical conservatism, Inc., establishment conservatives, National Review, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, types, members of Congress even, they're not crazy about nominating Trump again, so they prefer it would be DeSantis or someone else. But they voted for Trump. They supported Trump. I asked this question seriously, not even rhetorically. Has any of them just said that was wrong? Has any of the members who the hundred and forty seven members who voted to overturn the election results apologized for doing so? One of so? them? Just one? Is that yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, one? Yeah, I was struck, someone reminded me of this the other day and you and I have discussed this. Like Senator Cruz and Hawley on January first or second, I think it was they were the ones who kind of gave a lot of impetus to this because they said they would object. And before that, it was just House members and people thought they maybe couldn't even get a senator. So it wouldn't even get to kind of to Pence's level, as it were. and And the whole thing seemed a little bit of a you know, desperate kind of, uh, rump thing. Then you have two prominent senators joined by, I think seven or eight others. So I think there were nine of them maybe, uh, saying we're going to object. And, and then Hawley famously encourages the crowd on the morning of January 6th with that clench fist salute. For me, that's the image that one has to keep in mind. Important Republican senators, some of them kind of heroes to part of the right, encourage this mob action I wouldn't say the National Review and Wall Street Journal encouraged it, but they certainly minimized its importance and certainly didn't rethink their attachments because of it, and have since spent most of their time attacking the January 6th committee. That's the other thing, incidentally. Is anyone who was against the January 6th committee going to say, you know what, they've actually discovered a heck of a lot of important material, and they've presented it in a responsible way, and they haven't violated anyone's civil rights, and it's been a benefit to the country? I haven't heard that from the Wall Street Journal or the National Review uh, or any of the a huge percentage of republican senators and and members of Congress who voted against it,
0: well, let's go back to this overriding point about this is who Donald Trump always was, that Donald Trump was never going to concede this election. He was never going to admit he was defeated. and And again, you know, you and I have talked about this. we've have, we've have, you know read about this. We've talked about this endlessly. And yet it still felt, very vivid yesterday with this timeline that there is donald trump who's been informed over and over and over again that there is no fraud there is no way it is over his department of justice says you know that there was not sufficient fraud to overturn the election the electoral college actually votes on december 14th his own council tells him it is over the election is done and yet he is so desperate to cling to power that he's willing to do anything so he brings in this absolutely deranged group of conspiracy theorists into the Oval Office. And there was this meeting that took place that lasted for more than six hours past midnight with us shouting and the screaming and participants who nearly come to blows, all of it designed to come up with some sort of a scheme to give him another term in office, in power, after he has lost the election. And I guess it hadn't really dawned on me that he leaves this meeting and it was that night that he put out the be wild, you know, be there will be wild tweet that he decided that that he was going to make this particular pivot. I mean, I thought that was extraordinary. But I have one more thing I wanted to play for you, Bill. You know, to this question of this is who Donald Trump was, he was never going to acknowledge that he was defeated, that this is not just a contingent set of events that that just sort of happened. This is deeply ingrained in Donald Trump's character. The folks over at Mother Jones have obtained this, I think, absolutely fascinating audio tape of Steve Bannon before the election. This is a leaked audio. Before Election Day 2020, Bannon saying that Trump planned to falsely claim victory. Let me just play this because, again, this is before the actual election day. And Steve Bannon knew that Donald Trump would, if he had to, lie about the election, would refuse to accept the results of the election. Let's just play this.
3: More of our people vote early that count. Theirs voted mail, And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's gonna take advantage of it. That's our strategy, he's gonna clear himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's gonna be a firestorm. are gonna have Antifa crazy, the media crazy, the courts are crazy, and Trump's gonna be sitting there mocking tweeting shit out, you lose. <laughs> right. I'm the winner, I'm the king. And he'll be all over, he'll be, he'll be going, where's Hunter, is Hunter on a crack pipe? I mean, no, he'll be, because then it doesn't matter, remember, Here's the thing. After then, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's going to fire Ray, the FBI director, and fire the going to say "fuck you." How about that? Because he's <laughs> never going to. He's he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. <laughs> also, also, also if Trump is come. if Trump is losing mm. by ten or eleven o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. He, no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. Yeah, uh, agree. I'm directing the Attorney General. Hmm. To shut down all ballot places in all 50 states, it's going to be no. He's not going out easy. Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit.
0: Yeah, Bill, uh, Trump did some crazy shit because that's who Donald Trump is. That was it's fascinating to me that, that Steve Bannon understood even before the, a single vote was counted how Donald Trump would behave, what he
2: would do. And, of course, Steve Bannon approves of it and, and thinks that's yeah. just – and the people who were there with him, I suppose, I don't know who they are, la- are laughing at that at thought. You know, I hadn't listened to – I hadn't heard that, that mm-hmm. clip before. I'd seen it referenced on, mm-hmm. on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, and Heather Cox Richardson, the historian, very popular uh, – I guess you don't call them blogs anymore or whatever, you know, New, New, thing yeah. on Substack, very intelligent, actually um, – said that she listened to it, so saw this on Twitter, and, and was in a white-hot fury at these people – sort of relishing the thought of the civil disorder, but also overturning an election and just, you know, overturning self-government in this country when so many people had fought and died for it over the, over the decades and centuries. And I guess I, that's what I feel listening to this now. She says something like, you know, that they thought for them, it was just a game. And I, and I think right. she's, I understand what she's saying. She's right about that, but it's actually worse than even that because there are cynical political operatives. It's a game and they take cut some corners and take advantage for them. I'd say overturning uh, the sort of norms and of, of, a, of a constitutional democracy the rule of law that's not sort of a, a bug right that's a, right. that's a feature that's what that's the politics they want and trump you know doesn't think this through the way some of us uh, intellectual defenders do but they they it's not just that they aren't willing to fight hard for the rule of law and for constitutional democracy they disdain it and sort of despise it. And that's the, the, we've never had a president, I don't think, who was willing to uh, go go there. And so many supporters who were willing to go there, and still a year and a half later, people who are more respectable, who claim to care about um, uh, democracy and the rule of law and the constitution, who are not willing to call out these people as unacceptable. For me, that's what's also... A year and a half later, we're learning everything we're learning. 49% of the Republican electorate says they want Trump as the nominee in 2024. And, you know, the respectable conservatives and establishment Republicans kind of preferred that he not be the nominee, but certainly don't think he should be disqualified or or even opposed vigorously. Wall Street Journal is just busy warning that, you know, Trump's just hurting our chances a little bit here in 2022, and maybe he wouldn't be the strongest candidate in 2024. I mean, how pitiful is that?
0: But we've gotten used to it. I, I mean, this is the pattern here. I think this is a very important point. And I think the Bannon Soundbite just sort of clarifies this, that that all of the the actual claims of fraud are just pretexts. Mm-hmm. That really what has been internalized is this refusal to accept the outcome of the election. So in other words, the, the big lie is I mean, nobody actually believes the big lie because there's nothing there, but that doesn't matter. It's actually worse than believing the big lie. It's believing that you know, uh, um, it's more important that we cling to power and that we keep these other guys out of power. And when you start to realize what that means, it is that that, in fact, these folks are already post-democracy. They are already post-constitutional government. And all of the arguments, all of the rationalizations you know, are just sort of plugged into that, that larger abandonment of the American project. And and that's, that ought to be alarming to people. Um, And it ought to be alarming to the people who've been sitting on the sidelines and done nothing. So I have another just random thought here. Remind me to ask you about Watergate, (laughs) because I've been thinking a lot about all of this. The other thing that I thought was really extraordinary about yesterday was speaking of Steve Bannon, that Trump spoke to Bannon twice on January 5th, the day before. This was the day that, Bannon then, apparently after talking to Trump himself, says all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as they say, the point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. All I can say is strap in. Hmm. Now, this is Steve Bannon after talking to the president who obviously was on board with all of that. So I mean there are so many other dazzling details about this about this testimony that we heard yesterday including the fact that, once again, all of the most damaging evidence is coming from inside Trump world itself. I mean, everybody we're hearing from was either a Trumpist or Trump adjacent, which I think is immensely important. And I think it's great that the former aides are now testifying, but I can't shake the thought. I don't want to like, dwell on this for a long time, but I can't shake the thought. Why didn't they take public action between December 14th and January 6th to stop what was about to happen? Why didn't more of them speak out um, during impeachment? Why did they wait until now? I kind of wonder what history history's verdict is going to be. I mean, you know, great Pat Cipollone is, you know, doing the right thing. He's clearly ready to testify. But there were a lot of these guys who were in a position to do something much earlier and they didn't. And I, I, I just kept thinking about that over and over and over again. Where have they been for the last year and a half? Right. Uh, yeah.
2: Where totally. were they then? You know? Where were they then? Where were they between November third and December January sixth? Yeah. Where were they? During impeachment and then the trial in the Senate, uh, when we could have, I think, brought home to voters how unbelievably bad Trump's behavior was, again, as you say, really hostile to the American project, not just kind of a sore loser having a little bit of a hissy fit, right? But they didn't bring that home to the American public. If anything, they just kept quiet all the rationalizers went around rationalizing, all the accommodators went around accommodating, and here we are a year and a half later with a much greater ongoing problem than I think we needed to have. I mean, it was never going to go away, and four years of Trump as president did a lot of damage, and God knows you and I have spoken enough about how the Republican Party is uh, deeply uh, corrupted and, and conservatism and so forth. But but the failure to kind of uh, shut the door on January right after January 6th and to really bring home the lesson and to have some yeah. people say, you know what, I was wrong. And they're still not saying it. I still come back to that. I mean, we still have, uh, Is uh, shouldn't some person stand up today, one member of Congress, one, one, one. member of Congress <laughs> and say, I have now watched these hearings, I have now listened to the you know tape of Steve and at the accounts of the meetings in the white house this man cannot be president again i am going to spend the next two years supporting other people this will be a republican in the republican primaries against trump i'll support whoever couldn't if they want to say it this way whoever has the best chance to defeat donald trump but we could not nominate him and if nominated we cannot vote for him because he cannot be president of the united states again will anyone say that
0: Well, so far not, Um, they may be saying it in private, but we're used to that. So can we talk about Brad Parscale because he had this temporary flash of conscience, which seems to be a thing. Uh, so he he recognized uh, on on January 6th, he recognized the impact of the speech immediately. And so he's texting back and forth with Katrina Pearson, who is, had been the spokesman for Trump and said, this is about Trump pushing for uncertainty in our country, a sitting president asking for civil war. And then he said this week, I feel guilty for helping him win, which he didn't. And uh, Pearson responds, you did what you felt right at the time. Therefore, it was right. And Pascal Then adds, yeah, but a woman is dead. And yeah, if I was Trump and I knew my rhetoric killed someone and then Katrina Pearson says it wasn't the rhetoric and Parscale says, Katrina, yes, it was. Now, the extraordinary thing about that is he is still working for Donald Trump. So he got over it. Um, You know, yesterday we talked with Mark Leibovich about the people who, you know, had had caved into Donald uh, Trump. Uh, Tim Miller's got the New York Times bestselling book, Why Mm -hmm. We Did It. But it's still extraordinary to watch this process where you're looking at this is the man that I supported, who is, you know, whose rhetoric has killed someone. And yet a few days later, he's totally back on board again. I mean, what the hell?
2: And isn't he already sucking up to Trump just a month later? I think I yep. saw some yeah, some some email he sends to Trump about, you know, you're the man and uh, you've been impeached twice and let's go for a third time. And he's kind of sucking up, making sure he stays on, or gets back on the payroll, which of course he's happily on right now. And he's yeah. doing well. This is again the, the point uh, at one point that one just has to come to grips with. They have paid very little price. The accommodators, the rationalizers, not just that, but the actual Steve Bannon. I mean, has any of them, I mean, he may be in some legal trouble now, though, as he got pardoned. And as of now, as of yet, he's a free person making a, a good living, I'm sure, off of yeah. his uh, podcast or whatever that is. And this is true of all of them. They're doing well, they've paid very little price. Uh, almost no one has gone to jail. It's not like Watergate in that respect. And that's very dangerous, I think, incidentally. If it, that makes it more dangerous, I guess, is the way I would put it. One okay. thing to have to go through this, another mm-hmm. thing not even to call people on it afterwards, but a third thing, as it were, where people are sort of flourishing a year and a half later. Yeah. What lesson does that send to people?
0: Well, it sends a very powerful signal. So just, I'm not to dwell too much on this, but you know, here is Brad Parscal, who was the campaign manager on January 6th, says that, you know, Trump killed somebody with his rhetoric. He's calling for a civil war. I feel guilty about this. Literally one month later, February 6th, 2021, you just mentioned this. He tweets out a statement to Trump. If they only impeached you twice, you need to run again because to change the system, you have to kick it in the ass. I would love to be the only president to be impeached three times because history remembers those that didn't conform. I'm in. Are you? So one month later, of course, this follows, you know, Kevin McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago and there is this pattern. Okay, so the day after another extraordinary January 6th committee, I you know, Bill, I, you, you mentioned this earlier, but I, I think it's worth just mentioning that this committee is really a surprise. <laughs> I mean, they are getting better, I think, as they go along. I think they are learning. Um, I think that this has been much more consequential than people thought. And Kevin McCarthy's just got to be kicking himself, and others can join in as well, kicking him, not to have any representation on this committee. This committee is turning out to be more important, to have more impact than really anybody expected.
2: Do you agree? Right. I mean, uh, David Brooks, my former colleague at The Weekly Standard, wrote a column uh, in The New York Times the day before the first committee hearing. So what would that have been? Very late June. Mm -hmm. Only, what, three weeks ago, I think oh, it's too late, it's not They're, they're too partisan, it's not going to make any difference, it's not going to work. That was kind of the conventional wisdom of a certain kind of world-weary pundit who you know, doesn't think anything, any politician can never stand up and, and, and make a difference by what he or she does. No, I think the committee has been, uh, in, in an era when we're so used to seeing our politicians underperform, our institutions are broken, uh, Congress, God knows, doesn't work at all, right? Yeah, at to all. have an actual institution of Congress Uh, work well work effectively and the individuals on it behave impressively and admirably and up to and including i would say in this case the speaker of the house who clearly nancy pelosi who clearly who insisted that liz cheney put liz cheney on the committee that was maybe an easy call Made her vice chair. That would probably raise some hackles among her own party. Uh, then insisted, I take it she's really the one making these decisions. Uh, Chairman Benny Thompson deserves credit for uh, implementing them and, and going along too, but insisted that she have a central role. You can only imagine the like guy was joking with the Democrat the other day about this. Can you imagine the conversations in private with a huge number of ambitious and some of them quite impressive incidentally younger de- you know democrats who you know have been involved in the impeachments and have been fighting trump for five years and so forth and suddenly they're told hey you get to if you're on the committee you get to question for you know half of one hearing if you're not a, maybe there's not room for you on the committee because cheney and Kissinger are on it and uh, liz cheney's gonna be the star of this whole process and that's very important for the country nancy pelosi saw very early on it's effective politically for her obviously as well for the democrats but really important for the for the country the discipline with which they've done that the lack of grumbling i'm sort of amazed there haven't been stories with with you know people saying what do hey she was not you know be honest i mean liz cheney was not on board any of the much of the criticism at least publicly of trump before november 3rd uh, uh, 2020 so how come she's this you know the the heroine of this uh, committee but it's it's to pelosi's credit it's to thompson's credit i think jamie raskin and others on the committee clearly are, are working uh, in a collegial way with with her so I, I think it's an instance where but as you say more broadly it's a, it's somewhat reassuring that the system can sort of work, I mean, to some degree, that individual politicians can subordinate their own egos a little bit to the common good, that someone like Liz Cheney can demonstrate true courage and, and, and uh, uh, impressive leadership, and, and uh, who, we'll see what happens politically in Wyoming, but, at least, but she's getting credit from an awful lot of people. So it is, I, I agree, the committee is a sort of a, a bit of a, a bright light here in an otherwise somewhat gloomy landscape.
0: No, and, and, and the point about, you know, Nancy Pelosi's decision to put her on that committee and have her p- play a leading role uh, shows the ability to adapt because they didn't do this during impeachment number one right. or impeachment number two. They did not include any Republicans on on that team, um, and yes, you 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 do have people on you know the Twitter left. Uh, you have people like you know Don Winslow, who you know gone on these massive Twitter terrors attacking Liz Cheney, and of course Mark Elias, the the Democratic uh, attorney, is obsessed with attacking uh, Adam Kinzinger and uh, and and Liz Cheney. But that's not reflected in what's going on with uh, the the Democrats in in Congress. Also, Jamie Raskin. I gave an interview to the New York Times the other day where I think he understands that in the fight against authoritarianism that progressives need to make alliances with the center right that that is the history that that you must actually reach out to the center right to fight against the authoritarian impulse and he understands that lesson of history that lesson of politics and I think that that's one of the reasons why this committee has been so successful all right so i, 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 I I've been thinking about Watergate a lot lately, and you and I are both old enough to remember that in real time. Can anyone make the case, has anyone tried to make the case that Watergate was more serious than this coup attempt in terms of presidential scandals? I mean, when you think about what Watergate was, it was a break-in, it was an attempt of dirty tricks, it was a cover-up, it was the smoking gun was uh, the President of the United States talking about misusing the CIA to possibly to cover up his crimes. But how does that compare to what we now know Donald Trump did? Does anyone make the case that Watergate, which resulted in the resignation of the President and the criminal conviction of many, many, many members of the Nixon administration, was actually more serious than what we are confronting right now? Wouldn't you like to hear yeah. Hugh Hewitt on this question? Yeah, yeah, he worked at <laughs> the
2: Nixon. He did. He worked for President Nixon in one of his first oh, jobs in the college. He's a
0: big Nixon turd polisher, so, yeah, he'd, so he he'd, he'd have to decide which turd does he want to polish more aggressively. And Hugh has the capability of of doing both, but I would uh, be interested yeah. to hear his take on this.
2: No, I think, look, I, I very much agree with that. And, and I'll just so to, to flip it to a forward look at what are the problems? I mean, Watergate did result in the resignation. Of President Trump mm-hmm. isn't in that kind of position. But the analogy would be he's totally out of play in politics. You know, that the idea of nominating Trump in 2024 should be as crazy, as, as out of bounds, as disreputable as the idea of nominating Richard Nixon in for, you know, for another term in 1980 yeah. would have been, right? I mean, it, it, you know, you could not have to persecute the guy necessarily, you know, maybe pardon him or don't pr- prosecute him criminally. He gets to have a nice retirement and, you know, meet with people if he wishes, but it's at least as bad and I would say worse than Watergate. And the really bad thing is that trump is not in retirement as nixon was no one people, people who were better at and better than but mostly not been punished yet we'll see what happens and, uh, uh the, certainly politically it hasn't become something that you have to say no that can't happen again and Congress passed a ton of reforms. Some of them probably went a little far, or they were not thought through correctly in terms of the FBI and the CIA, but did a ton of institutional reforms and uh, uh, after Watergate to try to prevent it from happening. Again, they tried to strengthen the guardrails. They may not have done so always, as I say, in in the most brilliant way, but but it probably on net did strengthen the guardrails. I came to Washington in 85, and we were got lectures. We're getting careful. You can't do this. This is why people in 10, 15 years before went to jail because they used federal government authorities to pursue a a political partisan agenda and so forth. Obviously, most of us hopefully weren't going to do that anyway, but it was a live thing. You know, it was, it was a warning. Congress hasn't, passed any legislation. They haven't passed the electoral no, not Act. That. They haven't passed the kind of presidential reforms, pardon powers, and that sort of thing that Bob Barrow and Jack Goldsmith write about protecting the Justice Department from abuse, protecting the There's a lot that could be done. And that part of it is bad. And that's where the system is not reacting as, in as healthy a healthier way, you could argue, as it did in Watergate.
0: Well, the hindsight is 2020. And and I I mentioned this on one of the cable shows the other day, and I got no attention for it whatsoever (laughs) or or traction that. And and I understand maybe it's annoying to just to say, you know, what should have been. But as I think about Watergate, I think about the role that uh, the special prosecutor, Leon Jaworski played, uh, federal judge John Sirica Mm -hmm. uh, played. And that's the big difference. Um, In retrospect, I think it was a big mistake for uh, the Biden administration not to appoint a special counsel uh, on all of this, a special prosecutor, because now we have this quite, you know, this this reluctance to move more quickly. You know, had there not been a special prosecutor in Watergate, things would have been very, very different. If you didn't have John Sirica holding people's uh, feet to the fire as part of, you know, federal criminal investigation, uh, this would have been very, very different. But we don't have a Leon Jaworski, we don't have a John Sirica playing that role now. Uh, so I mean, in retrospect, I, look, I I don't want to join in the in the beating up on Merrick Garland. He's in a very difficult position, um, but you, you know that he's very very reluctant to look like he's acting politically. Isn't that exactly why you appoint special counsels so that you don't have that kind of you know consideration when when you have the rule of law at stake?
2: Yeah, no, I tend to agree with that. I think Sirica, if you've got the standard, you know, kind of shorthand history of Watergate, gives the media a huge amount of credit, gives the Congressional Committee a huge amount of credit, sort of forgets how much Sirica, uh, the actual trial that was going on, allowed Sirica to put pressure on people to flip and uh, or allowed the prosecution to put pressure on people uh, under a judge who wanted to see the truth come out to flip and and helped make the whole thing unravel uh, as it did. And and that was important. But the other point I'd make just, just compounds your confirms your point is we also had a republican party then after nixon wins a massive re-election victory not not like trump a loser and you know as a serious person who's been in god knows in the party for 30 years 40 years 30 years i guess and you know was a vice president for eight years and so forth and that even so you had a political party then that was willing to go along with setting up the the special committee uh for Watergate. There was a huge bipartisan vote for it that was willing to let Howard Baker as the mm-hmm. senior, as a senator, uh sort of be a responsible leader on it and work with Sam Irvin and not just do what Kevin McCarthy has done, try put on ridiculous people on the committee or, or then boycott it. You know, Liz Cheney is the equivalent, but there's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And that's two members. Howard Baker spoke and, and the others spoke for a lot of members. And then they ended up with a third of the Republicans uh, on the committee voting for the impeachment article. So not all Republicans obviously went along with that, but there was still a sense of country first yeah. and we need to find out what's happened. And Congress has an oversight role and a legislative role. This is again where... The, the utter collapse of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. How did I was in college, really, basically at the time, first year of grad school. How did I get to know about George Will and then about Bill sapphire Because they were two of the most prominent conservatives just beginning their writing careers then. sapphire and the New York Times when they had just started the op-ed page. I think a few years before, or brought in you know non, non New York Times writers to kind of become uh, op-ed writers, uh, and George Will with National Review then actually, and then he begins his column in the Washington Post. I don't kind of, I think yeah, he's just begun his column in the Washington Post in 74. And both of them are for getting to the truth about Watergate. They're the kind of two of the brightest young conservative writers. Nick and Sapphire was, had worked for Nixon, obviously. Yeah. So the degree to which, and National Review was mixed, they defended Nixon quite a lot, but a fair number of those people also said, no, the truth has to come out. So the degree to which we had a healthier Republican Party and a healthier conservative movement then is uh, is also worth noting.
0: All right. So uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Bill, you have actually been highlighting the possible decoupling of some of the polls for some time. I mean, Joe Biden's numbers are just absolutely abysmal, but there does seem to be a gap between that and the generic numbers for Democrats. And so there's this new poll out this morning, you know, asking people, what is your preference for the outcome of the 2022 congressional elections? 41 percent say Democratic control, 40 percent say Republican control, 19 uh, percent say uh, other, which again would suggest that the Democrats down ballot somehow are not paying as dramatic a price for Biden's numbers as, as one would expect at this point. What do you think is happening?
2: Yeah, I've been riding this hobby horse for a little while, and I think I was a, a vindicated at least in the short term. We'll see what happens, of course. Yeah. But I think I, I was right to notice this maybe three, four weeks ago, even that the generic ballot in the five thirty eight uh, kind of you know, uh, averaging of them, it was Republican plus two, two and a half, something like that. The generic congressional ballot uh, in this poll, as you say, it's Democrats plus one, a little, little better for the Democrats, and that Biden was way down in approval and sliding, and the generic ballot wasn't getting worse. So clearly, people are capable of saying, "I disapprove of Joe Biden at his job performance as president, but I'm not so sure I'm going to vote Republican." in the 2022 congressional election. It's not a ridiculous, incidentally, I don't know why people have such a hard time thinking that's like a crazy thing to think. And they're perfectly reasonable people who could say, maybe you and I might say it in some ways, incidentally, that we don't, we're not crazy about what Biden's doing as a president in every respect, but we are very reluctant to vote a Republican as a consequence. So I discussed this with Joe Trippi in a conversation. He's also been one of the democratic strategists pushing this and Simon Rosenberg uh, as well, uh, really trying to say that the conventional view is ultimately it's all about president presidential approval and there has been a high correlation right. historically. Ron Brownstein has a good piece about this today, walking through some of the correlations. And therefore usually the presidential disapproval drags down the party in power and there's a natural move anyway to be disappointed in the new people in the White House, especially if they also control Congress. And all of that means there's usually a bad performance, obviously, in the off-year, in the off-year election. Uh, but, you know, these these rules, A, they don't apply 100%, and B, I think people have exaggerated how much of an iron rule it is, you know, especially younger people who saw 2010 and then 2018, and they just think, well, that's always the way it happens. But we're in a new era. We have ex- real extreme Republican candidates. Voters are capable of decoupling, I think, to some degree, their Mm -hmm. judgment of Biden and their vote in 2022. And if the issue becomes Republican extremism, a Trumpified Republican Party that's anti-democracy and also extreme on a bunch of actual issues, guns, abortion, perhaps others, uh, and particularly extreme candidates in some of the key swing states running for Senate and for governor, uh, you put all that together, voters are capable of, of uh, as we say, as you said, and the term has become, I guess used now, uh, decoupling. So I think, I don't know if that's going to happen. The sophisticated response to me, and you've discussed this yeah. on the podcast with others, uh, Amy Walter makes this point, and others, is uh, at the end of the day, September, October, the kind of, the, 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 the weight of Biden drags you down if you're a Democrat. You can outperform for now. The reason we call it a wave is that it breaks late, it comes late, and that and is possible. That could happen. I mean, we could all be i could be sitting here thinking democrats have a decent chance pretty good chance actually to hold the senate maybe pick up a seat or two maybe an outside chance even to hold the house or make it close win key governorships and i could be just kidding myself and the wave's going to break over me and everyone else on september 15th and we're just going to be it's all going to be underwater but i'm less confident that that's the case because we're in such a new environment with the trumpy republicans the extremism uh biden as a kind of you know, a bridge to the future, but not really uh, the voters really think that they vote for for the Senate's a, a, a judgment on Joe Biden, I kind of think in a way is his being so little visible, kind of it may end up helping. Democrats. Anyway, that, that's I think that's the interesting debate. That we have now,
0: we don't know what the rules of politics are anymore because right. everything has been changing so quickly. So one of the things this poll suggests is, is that we are watching a rather dramatic realignment of the electorate in real time. Uh, let me just read you a couple of paragraphs from The Times article. The confluence of economic problems and resurgent cultural issues has helped turn the emerging class divide in the Democratic coalition into a chasm, as Republicans appear to be making new inroads among non white and working class voters, perhaps especially Hispanic voters, who remain more concerned about the economy and inflation than abortion rights and guns. But also for the first time in a Times-CNN national survey, Democrats had a larger share of support among white college graduates than among non-white voters, a striking indication of the shifting balance of political energy in the Democratic coalition. As recently as the 2016 congressional elections, Democrats won more than 70 percent of non-white voters while losing among white college graduates. So. Again, it's too soon to say how this is going to play out, whether we're engaging in wishcasting here, but there is a really a, a dramatic shift among the electorate and the, the Republicans have clearly, I think, are, are probably going to be losing white college graduates for a generation. The danger, though, is that Democrats are going to be losing the working class, that they've just simply forgotten how to talk to working class voters, in, including non-white working class.
2: Yeah, I mean, the conversation I have with Joe Trippi, the latter last part of it, uh, is alarm about the Democrats not being in touch with an awful lot of America and and so forth. So it's very, there are many cross currents at this point. We have two parties that have unstable coalitions, I think is the right way to think about it, in a new political environment, uncharted waters. So it's foolish to assume that, you know, any model from the past necessarily holds. I think an awful lot is up in the air. A lot depends on these particular candidates in particular states and the salience of the democracy issue and other issues as opposed perhaps to inflation. So I think it's a very interesting and provocative moment. And I think that's true going forward. I think it's very foolish to think that we know what's going to happen in 2023 or 2024 in either party at this point.
0: So I actually have a, I'm debating whether or not to write this, but you know, clearly, you know, Joe Biden is, you know, facing the low point of his presidency. Uh, You know, he's about 33 percent, at least one one major survey approval rating. Uh, You have these open questions about his age. You know, the Democratic coalition appears to be fracturing. The Democrats do, you know, with their circular firing squad, what they what they often do. And they're they're aiming at uh, Joe Biden. But it strikes me that the one thing that might save the Joe Biden presidency would be an early announcement of Donald Trump's candidacy. And by that, I mean that right now generically Republicans um, are, you know, clearly in a strong position against Joe Biden with the exception of Donald Trump. And the moment that Donald Trump announced announces, it becomes exactly the binary choice that Joe Biden needs to have something to contrast. You may not like the fact that I'm shuffling around and I'm gaff prone, but here's the alternative. And it becomes unavoidable. And the Republican party then has to make the decision, are we still going to go with Trump right now or are we gonna turn the page? So I actually am kind of interested to see two things. Number one, when Republicans you know, take control of the house, which I think is you know, pretty much inevitable, how far are they going to go in overreaching? And my prediction is there's no limit. they're They're going to overreach. They will be um on display. They have no governing philosophy. And when Donald Trump announces that he's running, things become much more stark and much clearer. And if there is a path for Joe Biden, that's what it would look like.
2: I'll even go further than you maybe and say just two footnotes almost. One, I think Trump is more likely than not to announce this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, that he's running for president in 24. I think he has a lot of incentives to do so, including suppressing any erosion among uh, upper sort of uh, wealthier Republicans, uh, establishment sort of Republicans away from Trump towards DeSantis. Clearly there's some of that going on. I think the Times poll itself shows that among college-educated Republicans, uh, donors and so forth. So I think Trump has some incentive to try to kind of freeze the race, also maybe take care of some of his legal problems. He can say he's a candidate. Anyway, I don't think it wouldn't be at all surprised if Trump announced around Labor Day doesn't that affect the 2022 20, elections, perhaps? Doesn't it make it even yeah. easier then for Democrats to say this is about a Trump Republican party? My opponent, whoever in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Wisconsin or Arizona, won't denounce Donald Trump. That's, that's the choice here. It's about Trump. It's not about Biden. I have my issues with Biden. I'm not going to go be a rubber stamp for Biden, but we need to not elect put Republicans in control, extremist Republicans in control of this Congress. My second point, and this is further out there, is Biden should announce at some point, in my opinion, that he's not running for a second term. Incidentally, if Biden announced this tomorrow, uh, having listened to this podcast tonight, wouldn't his numbers go up like 10 points? I mean, wouldn't everyone say, you know what, that's great. He's focusing on inflation, Ukraine, being a good president, a one-term president. Yeah. The key formulation. lame I, duck, though. Lame duck, but he's already a lame. What, what, what is he not Lame about what's not lame about it now <laughs> at thirty three percent. He can be, and he's got to say I can be a successful one term president. I'm going to break the the pattern where people feel they have to run again. I'm going to be a successful one term president. Fresh new generation, outsiders, governors, younger members of Congress, blah blah blah. Oh, I, they no, should no, all I, run I, in twenty four. know feel... Some people aren't quite where I am on this. Trippy actually isn't because he's too worried about circular firing squad among the Dems in twenty three. I take that point, but I I'm very intrigued by the notion of a next generation moderate Democrat nom- Democratic nominee uh, in twenty four. And I I think Biden would help himself and the party to basically say I'm going to be a one term pre- successful one term president, but a one term president.
0: Oh, Bill. See I I I feel a Bill Crystal op ed coming. Yeah. Okay. You need to write this. I think you need to like lay out that particular case because that's you know, and and, and to the extent that the Democratic Party is gonna have to wrestle with that future, you know, they need to start now.
2: I will write it, but since so many people listen to the podcast and it moves, it moves numbers, it moves voters, <laughs> it moves Biden administration officials, it moves Democratic, it moves Governor Polis and, 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 and various members of Congress out there to think, yeah, maybe I should do that. I, I'm just going to, I may just let it be, let the Charlie Sykes podcast have the influence that it really has. All right.
0: And thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always love having you, Bill. my pleasure. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Seary. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.